Second Peter chapter two. Let's get right to the text tonight. Uh, and stand with me when you find your place. Second Peter chapter two. In the first part of Peter's letter, there was this challenge <clears throat> for us to grow in our Christian virtue. Um, he ends chapter one with this defense of the faith. Um, there were people in the church that were teaching things um, that were contrary to the doctrine, the philosophy of ministry that the apostles had and what they were teaching and what Christ had taught them. And so he's defending the faith. In chapter two, he switches to offense. And now he's going after these guys. And as I've said the past two weeks, this is heavy stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's extreme in his language, but he means it. And so it's a warning for us to observe and to be on guard that we wouldn't let these things into our personal lives or into our church. And so I want to start a reading back in verse 1 again of chapter 2. He says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the truth of the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. And then in verse 4, which is what we preached through last week, he gives three illustrations. And it's true, uh, fire and brimstone here. He speaks about angels that were locked into prison by, by the Lord. He, he, he talks about the flood. He talks about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and all these things. And all of these are illustrations that point to the truth of verse 9. And that truth is this, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. Okay, so now he's going to go into some very specific things that these people are doing. Verse 10, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil, evil of dignities, Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord. But these are natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed. They speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly, utterly perish in their own corruption. And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices. And then he just says this, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Before we pray, I want to redirect our attention to verse 15, because this is where the title of the sermon comes from, and where I want to emphasize our time tonight. He says this, which have forsaken the right way. And that's the sermon title, just really basic from the text tonight. They have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam. Let's pray tonight. Lord, thank you for a good day. Thank you for the music tonight. Lord, thank you that we get to serve you. Thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray that you'd help us to find the application that's here for each of our hearts. 
and that we would be made better as a result of the time that we share in the next few moments in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Characterizing a religious uh, a religion or philosophy as a way, it was common in the ancient world, and we see it even resurface in modern parlance in shows like The Mandalorian, which a lot of our young people may have watched or be familiar with. And in The Mandalorian, there's this phrase that The Mandalorian says, of all Mandalorians, and all the kids I'm sure could probably say, or most of them could probably say it, this is the way, right? This is the way. And the imagery here suggests a path of belief that one follows. Those in the Bible who would lose their religious bearings are described as people who wander off from God's way. This is God's way, and, and, and there is a right way. And so Peter gives this imagery a nod and says that the false teachers are heading the wrong direction, and they're not going the right way. In the Christian life, then and now, there is a right way, and if there's a right way, then presumably there's a wrong way. And so here Peter is using this type of imagery. So for our purposes tonight, um, he calls the wrong way Balaam's way from the text. So as I, as I preach, and I'm going to try to help us with a little bit of, of word thought here, but if, if this was the right way, and so at the end of this aisle um, is, is heaven, it's God, it's, 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 it's reward one day, and so this is the right way, and this is the way the Bible points us to. There are other ways, but they're not the right way. And so many Christians, they get saved, and again, this is in context of those saved and that believe in the Lord, and they're heading in the right way, but there's another way, and it looks kind of attractive. And so they see this other way, and intentionally or unintentionally, they start to drift off the right way, but they imagine to themselves, I can still go this way, and I'll get back, there'll be a reconnection here, and I'll get back to the right way. The problem is this, this, this path leads somewhere else, and it doesn't reconnect to the right way. It, it, it goes to a different destination, and it, and it leads to a different place and to heartache, and to pain, and to damage, and to extreme regret. And so, Peter for us tonight, he says, he says, there's the right way, and there's Balaam's way, and these people need to be on guard because they are going the way of Balaam. So, why did Peter specifically say Balaam's way? What was Balaam's way? I want you to turn to your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. And I want you to look there with me for a few minutes. So, we're going to start here, and then we're going to come back to it at the end. The king of Moab observed the children of Israel as they came in to take the promised land. And he sees them coming, and there's a lot of them. And he is threatened by them. He doesn't want them there. He wants them gone. And he hears about this man who could, who could bless and curse people, and it would come true. And so his name was Balaam, and he asks Balaam to come and to curse the children of Israel. And Balaam tells the king of Moab, look, I can only say what God tells me to say. And I can't curse whom he doesn't say to curse. And I can't bless whom he doesn't say to bless. I'm, I'm just a spokesperson for God. And he says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a house full of gold and silver. I'll give you great dignity and wealth and, and unimaginable esteem in our nation. You just need to do what I ask you to do. Just, just do it. Just, just try to do it. 
And Balaam tells him time after time that he can't do it. And the, the, the king of Moab is very persuasive. And so finally, Balaam relents. And, and, and he goes to God, and, and in the text, God relents, but Balaam's heart wasn't pure, and it wasn't clean, and he wasn't going with the right motive. And so we pick up our reading in Numbers chapter 22, or 22, 22. And the Bible says this commentary, and God's anger was kindled because he went. So Balaam is going with the intent of cursing the children of Israel. And the angel of the Lord, now here's what the Bible says, he stood where? In the way. For an adversary against him. And he was riding upon his ass, and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand. Okay, so what's the donkey do? Well, the Bible says he turned aside out of the way. Okay? This animal's not too, too bright, but he ain't too dumb either. So he's, 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 he's going this way, and there's an angel standing there. And he's got a sword. And it's not in its sheath. It's drawn. And he means to do business. And so the donkey sees this and thinks, that's a threat. I'm going out of the way. I'm not going that direction. I'm going a different direction. I'm going to go to a place that's safer. So he goes off, verse 23, into the field. And so Balaam hits the donkey, and he takes the donkey, and the Bible says he turns her into the way. So Balaam says, this is the right way, and Balaam says, I'm going this way, and the donkey says, I don't want to go that way, I'd rather go that way. And Balaam says, no, you're going to go my way. And he forces the donkey back into this path, and, and so Verse 24 says, the angel of the Lord stood in the path of the vineyards and a wall be on this side, a wall on that side. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself under the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. And he smote her again. I kind of get that. All right. Verse 26, and the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he, he, he begins to beat this poor donkey. And finally, the, the donkey turns around to him, starts talking to him. He says, why are you doing this? He said, you know, you can't see, but I can. And verse 31, and then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord, the Bible says this, standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down his head, and he fell flat on his face. Here is Balaam who wants to go his way. And his motives in going weren't what they should have been. He saw the life-changing riches that were being offered, wealth he could only dream of. He wanted it, and he wanted it really, really bad. He thought, my goodness, my life would be changed, my future changed, I could be a wealthy man, I'd have respect and authority. And he begins his shopping list of all the things he's going to buy with the money that he could receive from doing this simple deed of cursing the children of Israel. He was greedy, and he was willing to do whatever it took to benefit himself. And Peter takes this man's life story, and he says that there are some in the church who are going the way of Balaam. It is their desire in life 
Though they're in the church and though they might be saved and though they might attend with you, but it is their desire to do whatever it takes to please self more than God. They are more attracted to other things. And he says, you got to be careful of them. And you've got to be careful of their influence. And you need to be aware of their devices. So what ways specifically were the the, the, the false teachers following the way of Balaam? Okay, so verse 10 is a transition. It transitions us from understanding God's judgment that is for sure coming on these false teachers to specific accusations. And, And in these short few verses, there are a lot of them. And I don't want to take a lot of time getting through these because I want to get to the principles at the end, but they deserve our attention. Okay, so number one, what were they doing? Well, they were going the wrong way in how they thought. And so verse 10 gives us insight into their mindset, what what they were thinking. And so the first thing that they were thinking, the Bible says that they walked after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And the idea here, he's going to come back to again a few verses later, is they had unrepressed sexual desire. They were giving themselves over to lust without checking it. They would just think whatever they wanted to think. They would act on what they wanted to do. They didn't check it. They didn't repress it. They didn't hold themselves back. They just acted on it. They were dirty in their minds. Second, he says they despised government. Okay, when we say the word government tonight, most of us would think something like the U.S. government. But that's not what he had in mind here. The word government means dominion, power, or lordship. And the idea was that they were resistant to authority regardless of its origin. So there is authority that God has established in three primary institutions. He's established authority in the home. He's established authority in the government. He's established authority in the church. And the idea was this, they were thumbing their nose at the idea of authority, specifically in the context of the church, because that's the context from which Peter's writing. So so they're just like, you know what? There might be a structure and a hierarchy here, but I'm not going to listen to you. You don't get to tell us what to do. You don't get to hold us accountable. You don't get to hold us in check. And Peter says, yes, we do. And yes, we are. And we need to be careful with people that have this type of idea about the church. He goes on to say they're presumptuous, failing to observe the limits of what is permitted and what's appropriate. There there are boundaries that God's established, and and they just have complete disregard for them. He says they're self-willed. This is all in one verse, by the way. It means they live only to please self. I'm not here to serve. I'm not here to contribute. I I am here to get what I need to get, whatever that is. And and that was their motive for being in church, for being around other people. That was their philosophy on life. All of these things. And then he says, they weren't just going the wrong way in how they were thinking. They were going the wrong way in their treatment of spiritual beings. So the last part of verse 10 says that they were not afraid to speak evil of dignities The idea here is that of angels. Okay, let me just throw out a caveat here. God is in control of what is written in Scripture, and He's also in control of what's not written in Scripture. 
So sometimes we read something like this and go, give us a little more here, Peter. Like what exactly what they, what were exactly what were they doing? And I read, I've read lots of commentaries on this passage of scripture and guys guess and throw in their IDs and things, but I'm going to tell you, it's not there. So God didn't write it. We don't need to know it, but we do know what we do need to know. We do have And the idea in the context is simply this. They were not taking angelic beings seriously. So this is what the context would suggest. Their behavior is bad. This is the right way. And they're going drifting off this way. And so some in the church, the government, those in authority came to them. They said, your attitude's out of line. Your actions are wrong. You're going the wrong way. And you need to get right. And we're not the only ones that are are, are, are telling you this, there are angelic beings. You're turning yourselves over to, to, to influences. You're playing with forces here you ought not play with. And then their response to that was this flippant regard for the authority established in the church and for the angelic presence in the world and in their own lives. And they scoffed at the possibility that their sin might put them at the mercy of evil spiritual beings. And they mocked the idea that Satan and his demons would have power over them. In fact, they were speaking of demons in a way that even the angels themselves, Peter says, don't speak of demons. So in verse 11, if you want to look there with me, he says, whereas angels which are greater in power and might... So these are the good guys. They are more powerful than the demons. He says they bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. Even the angels are cautious how they speak about the demons. Even angels who are more powerful do not insult them. And they were speaking flippantly. In Jude 9, the Bible says, Yet Michael the archangel... When contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. And then this is what the Bible says. He durst not bring against him a railing accusation. Michael, the archangel, powerful, even he himself said, the Lord rebuke thee. He was careful in how he addressed Satan. Evil angels still retain a higher rank than that of human beings. Verse 11 says they are greater in power and might, and these false teachers were slandering realities that they did not understand. They were going the wrong way in, the, in their attitudes and in their thinking. They were going the wrong way in their view and treatment of angelic beings and powers that they were speaking so flippantly and carelessly about, and they were going the wrong way in their pursuit of pleasure. Verse 13 says that they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime, uh, pleasure in and of itself can be neutral. It can also be positive. But pursued as a chief end, it leads to a very bad place. And so here they were. They were pursuing pleasure through feasting and drinking in the daytime, which was a standard mark of degeneracy, which is mentioned in other scriptures as well. They were doing all this. They were going this wrong way with this wrong attitude, with this wrong thought, with this wrong spirit about them, this anti-authority. And in all of that, they continued to attend church. And they continued to attend the special events of the church. 
And so he says this, verse 13, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. So Christians were having what many commentators say were either agape meals or love feasts. And it is believed, Bible doesn't necessarily make this super clear, but it was believed they would, they would get together as a church family and they would have a, a, a meal, a dinner, preceding the Lord's Supper. So they would get together in fellowship. They would have this meal. They would spend time together. They would fellowship like we often do. And then they would transition from this, this meal into the Lord's Supper, reflecting on the sacrifices that Christ had made for them, getting their hearts and, right, hearts and lives right with God. And, and, and the idea here is they would show up to these love feasts or these agape meals and, 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 and act like everything they're doing is just fine. Like the world's good. Doesn't matter that my attitude's wrong, that I, I, I'm causing a lot of trouble here, that I've got the wrong spirit, the wrong heart, the wrong actions. I'm just going to show up and act like I'm part of this group and I belong here. And in that process, they were deceiving, lusting after, and coveting every person there. They were looking for every opportunity they could to commit adultery. They had roving eyes. Verse 14 says, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. I mean, they're just lusting everywhere they look. Their eyes would not cease to sin. They would just dart from lady to lady to lady, looking her up and down with desire. Their hearts were filthy and they were dirty. And they weren't just content to commit sin. They were also violating others and pulling them into their vortex. Because verse 14 says, they were beguiling unstable souls. In other words, they were targeting the newer Christians. They were targeting the weaker Christians and influencing them. Hey, you're starting on this path, but guess what? You can also go this way and get to the same destination. And they could not. And they were beguiling them. Unstable souls. They were looking around at everyone around them and coveting their possessions coveting their talents, verse 14, and heart. They have exercised with covetous practices. They wanted what others want, and they swindled them out of their money and their possessions through their false teaching. Earlier he said that they made merchandise of them. And so here's Peter's commentary on all this. He says, you guys want to go that way? Okay. But let me, ha- let me share with you my heart. He says in verse 12, these are natural brute beasts. Brute means this, without reason. He goes on to say, made to be taken and destroyed. Speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. There is a stark contrast between an animal and a man or a woman made in the image of God. A big difference. The animal doesn't have a moral conscience. It doesn't have an eternity. Sorry, all dogs go to, don't, probably don't go to heaven, Right? There's a big difference. Animals act based on instinct. They act based on feeling. They don't have a moral compass and they weren't designed to have one. If your house tonight, you go home from church, you spend some time fellowshipping, you open the door and there's a big rat and he scampers off into your bedroom. And so you go in your bedroom looking for him. And there's another rat. In fact, there's a family of rats in your home tonight, right? How are you going to feel about that? Put out some extra corn for them? No. It's a brute beast. You're going to try to, what Peter would say, try to take it and destroy it. And he says, 
the same thing's going to happen to these people because they're like rats in the church. He says they're going to get what's coming to them. Verse 13, they shall receive the reward for their unrighteousness. He says spots they are and blemishes. The easiest way to understand this is to look at the opposite. And so there might be a body or, 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 or a face that's disfigured and it's got blemishes all over it maybe warts or some other type of disfigurement there. And he says that's how they are spiritually. They're hideous to look at. These are the types of people who he was dealing with. He says they're cursed children. Another way of saying it would be simply to say they are children of the curse. In other words, they are totally depraved. These are harsh words from the apostle, speaking of these people. Why would he say all these harsh things? The answer is simple. They have forsaken the right way. And they are going a different direction. And they aren't taking heed from anyone. And he says they're going to get what's coming to them, and the rest of us need to be on guard and to be careful. And that's basically the text. So what are we supposed to do with all of that? Well, let me give you two ideas uh, tonight, and, and there are many that we could preach. But let me give you two from the text. If we would stay on the right path, and I think the most of us tonight would say, yeah, I don't want to go Balaam's way. If we were honest tonight, we all know that our feet at one time or another have touched down on Balaam's path. But I don't want to stay there. I don't want to get off it as fast as I can and get back on the right way. And if we're going to participate in right way living, then number one, we're going to have to live in awareness that at all times and in every moment of our lives, there is a spiritual battle being waged. The angelic world was beyond the understanding of the false teachers, and it is beyond ours as well. But unlike them, we should be aware of its existence. Because while we may not know a lot, what we do know is that the angelic realm is very real. And there are good angels, and there are evil angels. And they live and exist and fight in the same space and world that we occupy. We should not give too much attention to angels. And Paul warned other churches about that but neither should we pay too little attention to them. Because if we are not careful, we can live in denial of the spiritual fight that we are in. There's an enemy, and too often Christians forget who the enemy is that we're fighting. Sometimes we start to think that we're fighting people, like I'm fighting my spouse, or my children, or my coworkers, or the big evil government. I mean, I got all these, I got all these enemies. But Ephesians 6.12 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And that's reality. That's not who you're fighting. It's not that person. It's not that government. It's not that individual. The Bible says this, you want to know what you're fighting against? You want to know who your real opponent is? Let's get into the, into the, into the big view here. He says, you're fighting against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what's really going on here. It's not people. It's what's going on behind the scenes. 
We are in a fight. And it's not just with flesh and blood and things that breathe and what we see. We are in a fight against forces that are unseen. And we should not fear Satan and his demons. But neither should we take them for granted and speak about them lightly or treat them that way in our own hearts. When we continue in our sin, we continue on Balaam's path. We live in any way related to what these people were teaching. Putting ourselves above others. Living in a covetous way. Valuing money more than serving God. When we do this, we, are put, we put ourselves in danger of influences, spiritual wickedness in high places. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, let Satan should get an advantage of us. He says, we're not ignorant of his devices, and you shouldn't be either. We need to be aware. At least one way that we resist spiritual powers is by staying under the umbrella of good and right authority. And that's what these people refuse to do. They thumb their nose at government, the authority that was in their lives. Authority is designed by God to be a protection in your life and mine. In the position that I am in, in my home, I am a protection to my children as long as they stay under my authority. There will come a day when they'll be out from under that umbrella. But until that day, they have protection. There's a protection of an authority in this church. There's authority that God's granted the government, and it's protective to us. People can abuse authority, and we know that. But God sees, and He judges, and He compensates for our willingness and our spirit to participate and be under authority and have a proper response to that authority. And these people threw off all authority, and He says, you're cursed for it. You're in big trouble and you're going the wrong way. And we need to be guarded and thoughtful about our interaction with the authorities in our life. Only God and His Word can counter spiritual opposition. We need to be under authority and we need to be the power of His Word. You have no personal power against the demonic influences of this world. On the cross, the Bible says about Jesus Christ, in the act of dying, And being dead for three days and then rising again, Paul said in Colossians, he spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He conquered them once and for all, and they know it. He won, but he's the only one that did. Not you and I, not other angels, Jesus Christ. And we have a responsibility to stay close to Christ and the power of His name. That's the right way. Going through the fruit of the Spirit in our adult Bible class from John chapter 15, the Bible says, Jesus said, God's the gardener, I'm the vine. Stay connected to me. It's the right way. And we have all the power that we need when we are connected to Christ and the right influences in our lives. The story in 2 Kings chapter 6 Elisha was causing the king of Syria all sorts of problems, and so he sent a host to capture him and to kill him. So here comes this host. Elisha is in bed at night, and his servant's in bed at night, and his servant wakes up in the morning, and he's sleepy, and he goes to let the dog out. He opens the door, and he's coming around with his eyes, and he looks up. 
and he begins to see this massive army that the Bible says had come in at night and they completely surrounded where they lived. This massive army and all these horses and chariots and warriors ready to descend on Elisha and he is terrified. It's a great story. And he goes back and he's, he's waking Elisha up. Master, you got to come see this. We're in real trouble. And Elisha comes out and he looks at the host and then the Bible says this. He prayed and said, oh Lord, I pray thee, this, this poor kid is scared out of his mind. Open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. I wonder tonight if our eyes were open and we could see, what would we see tonight? And I tell you, it's not that it's not real. It's just we can't see it. But it's real. Look, we need to be careful in how we live our lives. Because like these people, they were putting themselves into a subjective influence to demonic powers. They were going the wrong way, and we need to go the right way. Number two tonight, and I'll be done. If we're going to be on the right path, if we're going to serve the Lord, then we need never allow pleasure to become life's supreme goal. We live in a pleasure-oriented world, but there are other pursuits that are more worthy of our attention and our focus. The pursuit of happiness can become more important than the pursuit of the right way. And along the way of life, you and I will experience pleasure. It's a blessing from God, and it can and it should be enjoyed. But when we begin to see pleasure as a chief end, we run into real trouble. Pleasure is derived from the word hedonist. And hedonist is a person who believes that the pursuit of pleasure is the most important thing in life. That's what we pursue. Happiness at all costs. Pleasure as a goal can never be reached. It's always off in the distance. It's always out of arm's reach. It leads to diminished returns, urging us to pursue new and more sinful practices that never satisfy. And that's the life these people were living. Always pursuing more, pushing the boundaries. And instead of pleasure, we need to pursue things like contentment. We don't need more money and stuff and Amazon deliveries. We need more satisfaction. We allow money to determine too many decisions in our lives. Yes, it's supposed to be a factor in our decision-making processes, but it needs to be a factor and not the factor. But too often, we allow money, just like these people did in their greed and their covetousness and their making merchandise of the people, we allow greed to dictate which path in life we take. Oh, that job pays more money? I'll take it. And it took you out of church. Oh, that job will, 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 will really benefit me? Yo, I'll take it. And it moves you away from the place where you belong. we got to be careful with this because we allow our greed too often to interfere in our Christian life and it gets us off the right path. We need to put money in its place in our lives. Instead of pleasure, we need to pursue contentment. And instead of pleasure, we need to pursue purity. God designed pleasure to be confined especially in intimacy, which these people were pursuing in all way, in manner of ways. He designed it to be confined within marriage. And there is a lot of pleasure to be had there if you'll confine yourself to your spouse or for our young people tonight, for your future spouse. You can be pure and you can have a really good, intimate and exciting marital life if you choose to. 
when we look off the path for pleasure, we're going the way of Balaam. So here's what the rest of the story in Numbers chapter 21, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 22 says. So here's Balaam. We left him a few minutes ago laying flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? He says, Behold, I went out to withstand thee. And this is what the angel of the Lord looks at Balaam and thinks of his way. He says, Because thy way is perverse before me. The direction you're going, it's perverse before me. I wonder if the angel of the Lord were to come into our lives tonight and speak to us about the way of life that we are on, the decisions that we're making, the condition of our heart and our attitudes and our spirit, the things that we're doing or not doing. I wonder if he might look at us and say, I'm withstanding thee because thy way is perverse before me. Or would he say, you're going the right way. Let's keep at it. It's easy to go the wrong, wrong way. And the reason is this. It can look like the right way. These, these teachers were pernicious. They were subtle. They were charming. They were seductive. This looks better. It looks like it might be the right path. And so if that looks like it goes the right place and it looks a lot, it looks a lot more fun to me, I'm going to go that direction. The problem is this, Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man. It looks right. It feels right. My instincts say it's right. That's what animals do. That's how brute beasts think. And he says, there's a way which seems right unto a man, but the end of that path is the way of death. That path will lead you nowhere. That path's going to take you to a dark place. You need to get off Balaam's way, and you need to get back onto the right way. There is a way of thinking that relies on what feels good. There is a way that we promote and engage in social media. There is a way to us that's instinctual, and we would rather follow that. There is a way that is politically accurate, at least it is to us. There is a way of doing ministry in a church that's strictly conservative and mirrors the ministry philosophy of others that we hold in high regard. And all these things may seem right to us, but maybe they aren't the best way. And maybe they aren't even the right way. And maybe they lead to a diminished life, Christianity, and ministry. There is a right way, and there is a way that brings us to contentment, and it brings us to purity, and it brings us to peace before God. This way has harms, and this way has hurts, but there is some pleasure, and there's a whole lot of joy, and it's this way, and it's the right way. This may look better. It may feel better. But principally, it's the wrong way. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, the Bible says, And thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way. Walk ye in it. And when you turn to the right hand, 
when you turn to the left, the, this is the way. God guides. His word provides. He has the principles. And it's our job to stay on this way. When our path begins to diverge, to say, nope, there's a voice behind me saying, this is, this is the way. Walk ye in it.